Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Last week we had our first sponsor on the show, Can'tQuitFood.com. Now this week we're sponsorless, but we are looking for new sponsors. We're approaching this thing very cautiously, and we can promise you that we'll never sponsor anything we haven't used ourselves and personally believe in. So we won't be shilling for Stamps.com or Audible or The Great Courses, which they might all be wonderful for all I know, but you know that's the thing, we, we don't know. So if you work for a great company or you have a product or service that you'd like to tell thousands of Politics Guys listeners about, send us an email at politicsguys at gmail.com and we'll talk. We can't promise that we'll take on everyone who asks because, again, we're only going to promote stuff we've tried ourselves and feel really good about. But we'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Our top story this well, before we get to our top story this week, we should mention that we are recording this on Sunday, September 11th, which, of course, is the 15th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, attacks that killed nearly 3,000 people. And on this day, our, our hearts go out to the victims of these attacks and their families and the true heroes who, uh, who did so much in the, during the attacks and the aftermath of the, of the attacks. Uh, Jay, you have any thoughts on, on that? Anything you'd like to say? Yeah, I, I don't know that you know, this is something that uh, there's, there's little that we can add uh, to, to what has been said already other than, uh, you know, we – we think it's appropriate that, that this day always be sort of be treated as a, a day of remembrance uh, for for what happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, on it, and you know, it, there's always the danger of obviously politicizing these things. And I, I have a little something to say about this. And, and some people may say it's politicizing it. I certainly don't intend it that way, but I think it's an important point to make, especially since we're we're coming on a presidential election here. And the point I want to make is. That leadership really matters. Uh, when I think back to 9-11 uh, or right before that, we had a new president who had, in my view, a, a great deal of confidence. But again, in my view, seemingly very little intellectual curiosity and without a doubt, little experience in foreign policy. And that president, some people would argue, became something of a tool of his top advisors, people who had a grand and incredibly hubristic plan, uh, arrogant plan, to remake an entire region of the world in America's image. Uh, and it was a plan that cost thousands more American lives, far, far more Iraqi lives than, than that, and at a staggering financial cost, trillions of dollars, and that resulted in the destabilization of a region and that led to the rise of groups like ISIS and that are even more radical than, than al-Qaeda was. And that's my point. And again, I have some pretty strong views about George W. Bush. Uh, and, and I think, you know, how different things might have been if someone like his father had been president or, you know, some would say Al Gore. But the point I'm trying to make here is that leadership matters, especially when we're talking about foreign policy, because presidents have a lot freer hand when it comes to foreign policy than on domestic policy. And I just hope that's something that everyone considers very carefully before they vote in this election. That's all. Okay. All right. Our top story this week was the presidential candidate forum, a sort of a not quite debate in which NBC's, uh, I guess some people might call him a journalist, though I'll go with news-like personality, Matt Lauer, questioned the candidates about national security, foreign policy, and of course, email. So how do you think the candidates did, Jay? Did you get a sense that this helped or hurt either of them? Uh, you know, I don't know that it, it radically changed anyone's perceptions. Um, again, Clinton supporters have been furious. <laughs> and again, it's the, the sort of, uh, it, it's a little bit weird. I mean, again, believing that Matt Lauer uh, was just kind of pitching softballs to Trump. Um, I, my my sense of it is is just that, Look, Matt Lauer is a softball pitcher. Uh, that's just sort of 
um, what he does. And, and this forum, the way it was set up, wasn't um, – I don't know that it was necessarily set up to, to be a, again, debate-type type forum. It was more just about uh, uh, pitching softballs. Um, but, you know, just personally, I mean, it, it kind of makes makes my heart warm anytime I see the uh, the Democrats complaining about, you know, bias in the media uh, or some sort of conservative bias by uh, Matt Lauer from from the Today Show, uh, which – so, look, it was probably a, a, a worse week for uh, Hillary on that uh, than it was, was for Trump uh, and not even necessarily because <clears throat> she did poorly and he did great, but it was a matter of uh, I think Trump probably exceeded expectations – um, and, and, uh, Hillary did not. So, and, you know, I don't really think it was so much, uh, I'll, I'll disagree with some, with some, uh, of people on my side, some liberals saying that it, I don't think it's so much bias. I think it's just the fact that well, I don't think it's bias you know, at all. Well, I know you don't, but I'm saying some people on my side would say it's bias. Uh, I think it's just a matter of, they picked the wrong guy for the job. He was not competent to do this. He was in over his head. And for instance, a confident journalist who really knows his or her stuff, I would like to think that when Donald Trump comes out and says something that's just a bald-faced lie, that journalist would call them on that. You know, it's very clear now that Donald Trump continues to lie about his support for the war in Iraq. And Matt Lauer just let that pass. I don't think it's because he was trying to promote Trump or hurt Hillary Clinton. I think it was because he just simply didn't feel comfortable challenging on it because he's not a real journalist. I don't care what anyone says. So, Well, I was going to make the same point, although I would have been kinder to Matt Lauer. <laughs> I would say – I mean listen, the perception is he, he is not, uh, he is not a, a hard news journalist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, he does, you know, the Today Show, and and it's mostly puff pieces. And he did, you know, again, plenty of stuff from from the Rio Olympics. Uh, and again, human interest stories of, of, about athletes and so forth. Um, uh, did he do the Ryan Lochte interview? Yes, One he did. Them? I believe yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and the, my point is, is there are literally hundreds of incredibly well informed, hard nosed fearless journalists out there, real journalists out there who could have, who could have moderated this thing. And NBC picks Matt Lauer. I just think that's, that's a, that's a horrifically bad choice on NBC's part. And it just, it just kind of sickens me. I, I just think it was, I, I'm, I'm confident. Do you think, why do you think they picked Matt Lauer? Do you think it's because he was just, he's Matt Lauer. Pretty, boy, pretty, pretty face type thing. I don't and, know how pretty he is, but uh, he's a name. And, but I don't think you need a name. That's the point. I mean, you've got Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. So I just think NBC, I did. I didn't think it was a bad, bad idea from NBC. I am encouraged by the fact that Lester Holt, who is, a, who is much more of a real journalist, uh, is going to be moderating the first debate. And I think that this actually might have been a good thing because this wasn't a real debate. And I feel fairly confident that Lester Holt and everyone who moderates the future debates is going to keep this in mind. And I don't think they're going to want to feel that they well, that's, were ruled that's by Donald Trump. theory from the right, <laughs> sort of that they, they put uh, Matt Lauer out there uh, and, ah, his, it, yeah. intentionally knowing that he's, he's not going to be tough so that there will be all the screams for, for people to be, to be more tough. Right. Uh, and, and then uh, Lester Holt will, you know, have the, the, uh, excuse to go hard on Trump. I, I, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. Yeah. I think, you know, there may have been something in that uh, NBC, you know, did not want the person who's doing this forum to be one of the same people who's moderating the debate uh, because it's sort of two different jobs. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, sort of put uh, put Lauer in as, as, for lack of a better word, sort of the B team, yeah. um, you know, figuring this was going to be more of a puff, Puff uh, piece, puff journalism than than a real debate. Sure, national security. Um, it's you know, it's puff. That's human interest, yeah. lightweight stuff. Yeah, you know yeah. what are you going to do in the case of a you know a nuclear uh, nuclear incident? Yeah, you know. But I want to talk a little bit about the substance of this before we move on, because there was some substance. I think uh, Hillary Clinton already has been pretty detailed in in a lot of her her policy initiatives. Not surprising, she's been on the political scene for quite a long period of time. Donald Trump said a few things, like, "Well, he again 
promoted his uh, uh, great admiration for Donald Trump because after all – or for Donald Trump, yeah, for, yeah, that too – for Vladimir Putin because after all, the guy's got an 82 percent approval rating. And um, I immediately thought, yeah, and if you went to North Korea, uh, you would find uh, you know leadership with a 100 percent approval rating. So – but you know, Trump loves strongmen. I get it. Um, um, but also – I'm going to say something really quick in sure. defense of Trump on, on that comment. Um Again, he he did so inartfully, uh, and, and I think there, I think his his phrase was something like he thinks uh, Putin's a better president than Obama. Um, what he meant was he thinks Putin's a stronger president than Obama, um, and I think you could you can certainly make that argument. And and stronger, I mean, you know, better. I would say no, he's not better. Um, uh, and and his point, made largely by his surrogates later was that, look, uh, whatever you want to say about Putin, he puts he puts his country first. Uh, does he, though? I don't think he does. I think he's think setting... He puts Putin first. Yeah, I think he's setting up yeah. his country for just disastrous, you know, for a disastrous future. So, no, I mean, by some estimates, well, no, Vladimir no, no, no. Putin there's, is there's the... There's a difference between saying he's pursuing a course that will, that will be bad in the future uh, as opposed to saying he's putting his country's interests second. Yeah, well, I think he's not. I don't I think, think he, that was the, the point that yeah, Trump, I, I think Trump is was trying to make. Yeah, I think Trump is totally wrong. Vladimir Putin, by some estimates, is by far the richest person in the world because he has he has raped his country, he and his cronies. I mean, I think he's just an absolute no, I, disaster. I don't, I don't disagree with you. I'm just I'm, okay. I'm saying – and also, I want to point out that when when uh, Matt Lauer did kind of push back a little bit on that, said, well, you know, consider all the awful things that Putin has done. Like if you're a journalist who agrees with him, hey, you might end up mysteriously dead. And that's happened more than a few times. It's pretty clear that, that Putin has, most people would say, has eliminated some of the opposition in a very literal way. And then, then Trump just shot back with, well, you know, Obama's done some bad stuff too. And the idea that you can equate these two people and what they've done is just, is, is once again beyond the pale, but that's what Trump does beyond the pale. Well, that's, um, that's, I mean, that's the mistake there again, that, that Trump picks Putin to say this person is a, <laughs> this is the better leader. Yeah. Um, uh, but then he also okay. he also did something. Uh, speaking of beyond Here, the, pale. the thing, I mean, my thing is like you, if you're running for the U.S. president, you don't you don't talk about Putin at all. <laughs> you know, you certainly don't say I think he's a great guy and I think he's better than our president. You know, another thing you don't do you don't make these kind of uh, you don't make these kind of hints about what you heard at your national security briefing. Uh, and you know, it's kind of well, you know, well, I you know, I read look, the body I'll, language. I'm, and, also, I'm going to defend Trump a little on that too. Um, being because the questions were, I mean, he was questioned about what did you learn at your national security briefing, uh, and there were there were some there were some theories that you know, look, uh, Lauer was was trying to bait him into giving up some sort of you know classified information, um, uh, which he didn't. Now again, could he have handled it uh, better? Oh, absolutely, uh, abs you know, absolutely, but. Um, I mean, I, I think in, in fairness, you got to look at, look, here's the question that was asked. I don't think so. I totally disagree. I say there's only one answer to that, and the answer to that is that is a classified briefing, and I will not comment. And then if you're Donald Trump, you can add something like, uh, and, you know, I think this is very important, unlike my opponent, who seems to be very cavalier about classified or not understand, I take that seriously. I think he had an yeah. opportunity there, and he blew it because he's a fundamentally no, and, and he, irresponsible he, he, you know, the guy. Goof up of saying he was reading the body language of the people who were giving him the information and yep. he could tell that they were uh, anti-Obama, anti-Clinton. I mean, again, it just – it's it's just silly. Yeah. Um, A couple uh, other things. The much, the much better – the much better re response would have been, listen, I can't discuss that uh, uh, because it's classified. I think this uh, – Lauer's follow-up of were, you th were there things that alarmed you? I mean he said yes. Um I mean, I think you could have made statements like, listen, this is a very dangerous world. There are a lot of threats out there. Um, and he did say something about, I appreciate the men and women who, who do this. Uh, and that's why we, you know, and again, you could cut it off there and say, and that's why we need, we need strong leadership without going into the goofy stuff of uh, him reading their body language to indicate their support for one right. candidate or another. 
Yeah, and he also made some ridiculous policy proposals, like, for instance, uh, he's going to make the military a lot bigger by some estimates costing up to $90 billion more and said that, well, you thought a lot of it could be paid for by uh, uh, waste, eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse, which just made me roll my eyes. Um, and also, he apparently has a secret plan to defeat ISIS, which, as best we can tell, amounts to asking his generals to come up with a plan to defeat ISIS. Like, oh, well, and no one ever thought about that before, I'm sure. Come that's- on, man. You can't, you can't expect you're, – you're, you're on the one hand, you're picking on him for uh, uh, giving give, getting too deep into classified briefings, and now you want him to give away a secret plan. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, My point is, is he's a lightweight. He has no experience, and this is the last the – last- the last time we need a, a – we certainly don't need a lightweight in, in foreign policy right now. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of foreign policy, on Saturday, the United States and Russia announced a major agreement intended to reduce the violence in Syria, which I should point out is in the fifth year of a horrific civil war that's resulted in over half a million deaths and displaced over 11 million Syrians, which is about half of the country's pre-war population. This in turn has created the greatest refugee crisis since World War II, and it's provided a breeding ground for radical Islamic terrorism. Now, the agreement that was reached calls for an initial one-week reduction of hostilities to start, and if that comes off, the U.S. and Russia will begin to share targeting data and to coordinate bombing. So what do you make of this new agreement, Jay? Um, you know, I, I got to gotta say – you know, if we go back to Syria, I think so much of this uh, has been the fault of, of a dithering U.S. policy. Um, yeah, I you know, agree. talking about talking about red lines and then talking about arming the the good rebels uh, versus versus the bad rebels, and and then not really doing so, and um, you know, but and and allowing the Russians to jump in into the void we created. Um, my concern is that this ends up with um, Assad firmly in control and Russia essentially firmly in control of Syria. Um, will it uh, perhaps alleviate some of the refugee crisis by stopping the violence? Um, I think it will, but you know you can say it's the, the violence is going to be stopped because Assad's going to going to you know win the war and stay in power. Yeah, I I don't really think it's going to work. I mean, I I. I'm a little concerned about uh, Russia getting information on how we do uh, uh, targeting and so forth. I think that's a right. bad idea. Uh, I think you know Russia's plan is a lot simpler than ours. They don't have to worry about you know, a lot of the factors that we worry about, like you know freedom and democracy and and, and keeping out you know awful regimes like Assad. And, and apparently, no one's emigrating to Russia. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, go figure. And so I think Russia's Russia's task is a lot simpler. And our task from the beginning is, well, we don't want Assad to be in power, and so we want to support the good rebels who are also fighting the Islamic extremes. I mean, it gets it, – it's such a very complex situation when you look at all the groups who are fighting. And Russia's position for a long time – they're longtime allies, allies sorry, of, of Syria. Really, Syria's only big ally, and, and their view has been, well, we're going to prop up this guy. And that makes their job a lot simpler. And and uh, unfortunately, like you said, our policy has been kind of disastrous in the beginning. And I, I mean, I can understand why. Certainly, we don't want to do things to kind of like our traditional policy has been to keep keep strong men in power, keep repressive regimes in power, so we don't have to deal with the fallout from. The vacuum of power, right? I mean, yeah. that kind of yeah. goes back to the whole problem with with what we've been trying to do in a lot of instances in the Middle East is we would love to see democratic regimes there. Of course we would. And my view, and I think the view of a lot of people is that, but without that structure, you can't just kind of implement that. And because there's going to be this big vacuum of power and the people who step into it are going to be awful people. I mean, we've seen that right. again and again and again. Right. You know? So, yeah, it's a pretty yeah, big. No, the, the, yeah, there's no, there's no history of democracy. There's no, as you say, the democratic infrastructure in place. There's, it's, it's a, there is a really a different cultural uh, view altogether. And, and whereas we would see in the West, um, or we, we've talked about this before, you know, after the retreat of, of uh, communism in Eastern Europe, uh, democracies sort of flourished um, organically. They just, you know, we maybe helped a little bit, but they sort of sprouted up and 
everybody got it, and with the exception of some places that have had uh, uh, ethnic strife, uh, you know, Bosnia, uh, Serbia, all, all that Yugoslavian area, um, y- you know, it, it's it's been it's been successful. Uh, but the Middle East doesn't have that history, doesn't have that. Uh, I'm, and people make it mad at me for using this word, but doesn't have that that competence. Um, in in managing a, a democracy, and I think it's and yeah, just just don't don't get what it is. So yeah, well, yeah. and I think yeah, not having institutional structures and a lot of uh, and a lot of experience of that sort of thing is is a real is a real problem, and that kind of gets again into the perils of nation building. And I think you know you either when it comes to nation building, you either uh, go big or you go home. I mean, and in some instances, like after World War II, like after Korea, we kind of went big. We made a yeah. multi, you know, we made a huge commitment in some areas, and that made a difference. But now we're not in a position where we can do that. And so, you know, I, that's why I agree with the pre-9-11 George W. Bush who said, you know, we shouldn't be in the business of nation building. Absolutely. Now, we're kind of stuck now because some of our previous commitments and we've created this big mess, you know. Uh, so how do we get out of it? I don't think anyone has any good answers. All right. Right. Before we get on to our next door, we'd like to thank a new supporter this week. We received an extremely generous donation from James who writes, I'm listening from Sydney, Australia, and have always appreciated your edgy, mature, and thoughtful analysis of what the hell is going on at the moment in your country. Keep well, it going, politics guys. Edgy, mature, and thoughtful. That's that's what I'm. That's what we're shooting. You know, for, absolutely, so thank absolutely. You very much. Yeah, we're glad to hear that we did that. So, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what James did. Just go to politicsguys.com. You'll see the PayPal donation link we have there. We would really appreciate it, of course, and also check out the listener rewards link on our site there. And as always, be a big help if you could spread the word about the show, share and retweet our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter, and and leave reviews and ratings on iTunes. Okay, we'll move from one international hotspot to another. North Korea's test of a nuclear missile on Friday. Now, that's North Korea's fifth nuclear test, and it had a force of... 10 to 12 kilotons of TNT, which is nearly twice the power of its previous test in January. Now, some defense analysts are concerned that at, consider, at the rapid progress North Korea is making with their program and say that if this rate keeps on going, it's not going to be all that long before the North will have a nuclear missile capable of targeting the west coast of the United States. So what's going on here, Jay? And more importantly, maybe why aren't we doing anything about it or what are we doing about it? Well, I, geez, you're asking me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think in, in what's going on, this, this, you know, what we're seeing is the result of, of, uh, you know, we've had had some tough foreign policy choices about what are you going to do with these these rogue states that are gaining nuclear power, uh, nuclear weapons. Um, you know, we made a deal back in the '90s that was supposed to keep the North Koreans from developing nuclear weapons. Uh, and and that has not worked out. I think this test, because of the magnitude of it, because it was so much bigger, um, it was it was recorded, uh, you know, by by satellites and various intelligence folks, um, you know, indicating that this was real, this really happened, this was big. There's there's been always the the tendency whenever North Korea would do one of these tests to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe you detonated an, you know, this size nuclear weapon. Maybe it didn't. It sort of worked. Maybe it didn't. Um, and they just sort of sort of roll our eyes. But I, I think this means the West is taking it more seriously. Now, the traditional approach has been that you know we would partner with China uh, to sort of get us some uh, leverage uh, in the, the idea that China does not want North Korea uh, destabilizing Southeast Asia, um, but but reading the tea leaves, uh, the North Korean Korean leaders were meeting with the Chinese before the test, um, and uh, the the reception that Obama has received in, in Asia has has again been chilly. Uh, I, I don't know that we can count on the Chinese to be sort of the intermediaries here uh, and help. Uh, Help rein in North Korea. Uh, I it's and I think that's that's a, a really really you know to use Donald, Donald Trump's word a huge concern um, because there are, that that takes most of the diplomatic options off the table. I mean we we also we said we would 
ratchet up sanctions on North Korea. And I'm, and it occurs to me, what? How how can we? Is there anything that we haven't sanctioned yet? I mean, how can we possibly rack up sanctions? It's you know sort of telling North Korea they're going to be on double secret probation. Um, and and Obama made again one of these horrible statements of you know look if this continues there will be consequences. Um, well, there will, and, and there will be a ratcheting up of sh- sanctions. I can pretty much guarantee that. But your larger point is right. I think that we've we've done almost everything we can internationally, and as long as China sort of allows this to happen, and it's really China's essentially North Korea's only only real friend of significance, then that's going to be a problem. And I should point out that one this is why one of the reasons why this is such a complex. I'm just, and also, I have to say, completely politically incorrect. But there's like this wonderful line from uh, Team America that you're probably familiar with. With the, um, in that point, it's the puppet Kim Jong Il discussing uh, other nations. But right. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think I think I know the line you're talking about. Yeah. But you know, I, I mean. Uh, some people may not know, but not too long ago, we signed an agreement with South Korea to put out a, a missile defense system. And China just hit the roof when, they, roof when they heard about this because they believe it has offensive capabilities. We insist it's only defensive. You can understand why South Korea is, you know, pretty – pretty concerned about this. And sure. you, and so all of these things kind of interact. You can understand, of course, from the Chinese perspective, why they're probably yeah. shaking in their boots being concerned about South Korea launching a war uh, yeah. on China. And, and given but, given the fact that Kim Jong-un is, is such a nut job, I mean, and there's no other, I think, good way to put it. I mean, the guy just, the guy just banned uh, sarcasm in his country by South I heard some report on that. And I mean... This is a, a totally unstable guy. Talk about a power vacuum. If they, if if he got taken out in some way, China doesn't want that for understandable reasons. It's right on their border, so it's a boy. It's an awful situation all around. There are no good answers. And you know, President Obama in a statement said, uh, "To be clear, the United States does not and never will accept North Korea as a nuclear state." And my oh, yeah, that was it. Yes, yeah, yeah. he's my, not going to accept it. Yeah, well, that ship has sailed. North Korea is a nuclear state. And they're going to keep on becoming a more and more competent nuclear state. And unfortunately, there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do about that. And, you know, if you see that happening, especially if you see someone like the potential of a, a President Trump saying, hey, you know, a lot of you countries, you're on your own unless it's in our interest. If I'm South Korea, if I'm Japan, I'm thinking, so maybe we should have a nuclear program of our own. You know, and and this is well, I, let's let's. I mean, I'm I'm not going to say that there's nothing we can do about it, though, uh, because as you said, we talked about a um, uh, a missile defense program for for South Korea, uh, and then the Chinese got upset, and then we sort of backed off. I mean, the other option is no, we're going to help South Korea develop a missile defense program. No, we still we're still doing that. No, we're doing that. We didn't right. back off. That's why the Chinese are so upset. Because we're not backing off on that. So I think that's uh, – you know, but my point is is that all these things are so interlinked and really the main player in this is China. And you know, President Obama has talked a lot about his uh, pivot to Asia as he calls it. Uh, and uh, in fact, he spent the week in this region, right? He visited China. He visited Laos and he was called a son of a whore by the president of the Philippines, which apparently is just one of those terms that the president of the Philippines uses for everyone, you know, including the pope. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I think it's important to, you know, I agree with President Obama in the sense that the future is in Asia. But I also think that no matter how hard we pivot to it, to use his phrase, that future is not going to be with us in a leading role. I mean, you take a look. China's got 1.3 billion people right now. It's over three times our population. India is in that region and is huge. Before too long, China's going to be the world's largest economy. I mean, you can kind of see where this is going, and we can keep on. I mean, we certainly do need to engage in that region by doing things like promoting the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I see almost as much as a uh, defense kind of security thing as a trade thing, something Donald Trump totally doesn't get. And I think Hillary Clinton uh, does and get that. Is, and Hillary Clinton no. is, is about it. Yeah, now, she but. gets it, but she's being disingenuous about that. I think once she's president, uh, she will go along with it and make up some kind of excuse or something. But but again, I think you take a look at the region, you take a look at the demographics, and 
it, it, it's pretty clear that it's going to be really difficult for us to maintain the sort of control in that region. And I think we're faced in a way with the sort of situation that the UK was faced with in the 1940s and the 1950s saying, well, we're just not going to be able to do the sort of things we did in the past to have the sort of control. So how do we engage, how do we disengage in a way without creating a huge disaster? And I think that's a harder question to answer than it was back then. Cause of course we have all these nuclear nuclear issues to deal with. It's a, you know, it's a, Oh, it's a big mess. It's a, a dangerous time in the world, which is yet another reason why I think we need someone with some serious foreign policy experience at the helm. Well, and there, I would also say there may come a time, and this is this is the conversation we need to have with the Chinese, where the North Korean regime needs to be removed. Yeah, that's a boy. That's a oh Jesus. That's you know, a, and and yeah. no, I mean, I'm just saying this is this is. Look, we've <laughs> certainly done it before. If you think, because here's the thing: I mean, if you think Kim Jong Un is just going to give up his nuclear weapons, um, he is not. No. Uh, if you think he's going to abide by any treaty, he is not. Um, do you think he will use his nuclear weapons? Maybe. Uh, the other concern would, if not even so much an attack on South Korea, is you know what does North Korea really need? It's money. Uh, and and uh, would would we believe that Kim Jong Un would uh, not sell his nuclear weapons uh, to to someone else um, uh, in exchange for for cash and just the the the, the hope that you know someone else launches sure. a nuclear attack and and you know brings up more destabilization that sort of thing. Well, yeah, um, I see those are point. really really big concerns, and somebody's going to have to do something about it. And at the end of the day, um, you know, if, if Kim Jong-un is not going to abide by agreements, you can't reason with them. Someone's going to have to do something that's that's going to involve planes and bombs. Well, I think Kim Jong-un made, has made it clear that he's not interested in giving up nuclear weapons. Uh, and I also, from what I understand, that right now they have enough material to make somewhere around 21 nuclear weapons of, of any significance. And, of course – the, their capabilities, and that is just going to keep on growing over time. So if something were to be done in a military way, the smart thing uh, – I hate to use the word smart thing – but the smarter thing is to do it sooner rather than later. And the Chinese pretty clearly are not interested in doing that right now. And my fear, and I think the fear of a lot of people, is that by the time there's the political will to act, uh, it could be too late. But again, even if even if somebody does act, the question is: take out the regime and replace it with what? You know. Well, there's 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 two there, there's two players that can act. It's us or the Chinese, uh, or act. We could act together. Yeah, but but again, is, is there is there a plan that that's going to do something that would you know be that would make the situation better? I, I don't know. I think that's a gosh, that's a that's a really tough problem for sure. So, I know I wouldn't want to be, even though I'm running for president. I don't know that I want to. You're have to dodging make this. the tough question. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, all right. Um, Let's back to let's go back to Middle East policy. I should mention on Friday, uh, right before 9/11, Congress approved a bill allowing 9/11 victims to sue Saudi Arabia for any complicity it might have in those attacks. The White House is strongly opposed and has indicated it will veto the bill. Uh, what do you think, Jay? Are you with Congress or are you with the White House on this? Well, it's 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 a weird uh, weird thing, but no, I I think Obama's right. Well, and, um, and why so? Well, and this is this is more. Well, I'm looking at it from a couple of different ways. Um, first of all, the the idea of suing foreign governments uh, for the actions of um, their nationals uh, that's that's problematic. Uh, it's problematic because it's going to you know come back and, and bite us. It's also I'm not sure what what recovery um, we get. Uh, the the federal government clearly has the right to. Um, manage uh, foreign policy uh, and and Obama pointed out quite correctly I mean you're exposing other Americans abroad uh, to a lot of um, if not retaliation um, the repercussions of, of this type of thing mm -hmm. uh, so as as much as as 
I would say I, I sympathize uh, and understand the, the need to get get some sort of justice. And, and at this point, I, I don't think there's been, ever been any complicity really shown, right? Um, you know, with the with the Saudi government. Um, it's I I think it's. I think it's good. I think it's a little silly that the Congress is doing this. It's it's some grandstanding. Um. Uh, so yeah, I I think it's it's uh, the better national foreign policy is is uh, we don't authorize the suing of uh, again uh, people who are you know look uh, nominally our our allies. So. Right. Right. You're very. Very nominally sometimes. But, you know, I agree with you entirely on this, Jay. Uh, I, I think you said it very well for all the, all the reasons you stated. You know, one other thing I want to point out on this is I was curious about how this would actually work, you know, if it managed to become law and if, and this is a big if, if a U.S. court found that Saudi Arabia was liable for damages. Now, I am not a legal expert, of course, so I reached out to a law professor colleague of mine to get a sense of how it would actually work, and uh, according to him... You didn't ask me first? I did not ask you first. Well, go ahead. Go but, ahead. Uh, I have my answer, though. Okay. Well, uh, according to him, even if Saudi Arabia didn't want to pay up, payment could be taken from Saudi assets in the U.S. or in the form of garnishing payments U.S. businesses like oil companies are paying to Saudi Arabia. And he pointed me to a number of Supreme Court cases on the issue. So it seems, after after reading what he had to say on this, it seems pretty clear to me that at least as a practical matter, it could certainly work. Though the bigger question, of course, is whether or not this is smart policy. You said it, you said it wasn't smart policy, and I entirely agree with you. I think, well, I do sympathize greatly with the victim of 9-11, I think this sets an awful precedent and it's a bad idea for for a lot of reasons. And it was, I think you used the word grandstanding by Congress and I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. The, yeah. The way uh, your professor friend is right, that's how you do it. You'd, you'd uh, garnish accounts that are held here. Um, but then what the Saudis could do is just stop holding accounts here. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of... Uh, you know, and, and you set up a retaliatory spiral. Of, okay, kind you're of not going to pay yeah. our contracts. You're going to garnish that. Well, we're not paying your contract, and so, um, yeah, it's it's not it's not a great uh, yeah a great way to go in in any event, and um, and even if they should point out, even if no court ever finds that uh, that the Saudis were complicit and they're liable for damages. The precedent that that sets and then the concern about, well, you know, uh, other countries enacting the same right, sort right. of uh, laws. Some other countries yeah. will, will, will find the U.S. guilty of, of what have you or exactly. various war crimes, whatever, and can use that as the basis to seize people traveling exactly. uh, as to, you know, seize assets and so forth. Yep. Yeah, so. absolutely. So we are in we are in complete agreement on this one, Jay. How about that? I think so. Yeah. Think so. Well, it's cool. Every once in a while. It's time now for Under the Radar, where we highlight a story from last week we feel didn't get the attention it deserved. Now, my Under the Radar story for this week has to do with why we have regulatory agencies. Republicans in Congress have been huge critics of the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill that was passed by President Obama and the Democratic Congress in 2010. Uh, the good old days. Um, anyway, they've been especially fierce critics of – Things the, were great in 2010. Well, yeah, they've been especially fierce critics of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFPB, which is a citizen financial watchdog agency that was created by Dodd-Frank legislation. It would almost and, certainly – And run by Ohio former uh, attorney general. And uh, Jeopardy champion. There you go, Rob. Rob. Um, um, Rob. Rob. Um, I'm blanking on the last name. Help me out here, Cord, Cord, <laughs> Cordray. I want to say uh, Cordray. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I I always think about the uh, Daily Show old Daily Show correspondent um, who has like a similar name or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, my point being is that Republicans would love to shut this thing down. They made it very very clear. Here, there was a story from last week, one of the many reasons why I think that would be an awful idea for anyone who's not in the 1%. On Thursday, Wells Fargo Bank was fined $100 million by the CFPB for creating fraudulent bank accounts for 1.5 million customers and fraudulent credit card accounts for 565,000 customers. Uh, what, what happened was employees of the bank would create the accounts, either transferring funds from a current customer's account to a new sham account, 
or issuing a credit card a customer never asked for and then quickly closing the account or canceling the card to take advantage of incentives that the bank offered these employees for signing up new accounts. Now, some customers ended up getting congratulations on your new card letters and saying, what new card? Or they started receiving notices for fees on accounts that they didn't know anything about. And this was a really widespread thing. It had been going on since 2011, and at least 5,300 employees have been fired for being involved in this scam. And to me, this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff goes on all the time. Not just in the financial well, well, industry. No, it, it, oh, if, if I, you want to know, Jay, hold on. I think you're to extrapolate that they did this and this goes on all the time. I, I, okay. I don't know that the evidence supports that. But okay. Go ahead. Let me just say, I, I think that's you know it's a fair point. Well, if you're going to argue, which you have argued in the past, that vote fraud goes on all the time and we just know about the case, the rare cases that get caught then I think I can argue that this kind of financial shenanigans go on all the time, and we only know about the rare cases that get caught. But my point – Oh, man, you walked walked right into it, but go ahead. Okay, I'll let you – I'll let you I – don't, I don't necessarily – but yeah, I'll let you go to that. But my point being that this is an example of why we have regulation, to keep, to keep these firms – honest. And I think it's a good thing. I am a big – I think there are some real problems with the Dodd-Frank legislation, but I am a big supporter of the CFPB. Now, of course, the banks hate it. I understand Wells Fargo didn't want to pay $100 million, you know, but that's why we have regulation. And that's why that simplistic notion of all regulation is bad, I think, is just that, a simplistic notion that's entirely wrong. And yay, CFPB. All right. I got to – I got to – I got to, you know, weigh in on this thing. Yeah, please <laughs> First do. of all, fraud fraud has been illegal for really, really, really a long time. There are plenty of laws on the books uh, <clears throat> regarding fraud. And in this case, you had millions of consumers who were defrauded. And they have uh, recourse in the courts. Uh, and Here's me rolling my that- eyes. They don't, though. <clears throat> they don't in many cases yeah, no, because I mean, there these will, – There will be – but they there don't. Are, there are other mechanisms to enforce that than, than the CFPB. And the, the big complaint with the CFPB from Republicans has been uh, in its its creation was it uh, really authorized uh, by uh, uh, by Congress in terms of uh, when when a, I'm trying to think when he put the people in. Um, and again, I'm blanking on this because it's going back to 2010. It's, it's a while back. But the yeah. dispute the dispute was. Um, was uh, Cordray authorized uh, and so forth to to be, but but that that sort of goes to a different point than than what you're talking about. Um, yes, these fraud is illegal and it ought to be prosecuted. Did we need to create a new separate entity to do that? No, uh, the criminal law uh, already should apply to most of this. And again, there are civil remedies, which I I am sure will be pursued vigorously. Um, but they can't be. As, That's as my point. On. That's I, my it's, point. It's just that- to me, it's a case of you don't. This is not a thing of uh, you need more government. And and let's put it this way: Did the fact that you had a you know quote unquote government watchdog do anything to prevent this? No. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of. It sort of blossomed uh, well, under that. I, I, I so, need- yeah, sh- look, sh- look, shame on Wells Fargo. Uh, they're going to they're going to get what's coming to them. Um, and, and also, lastly, on the, the, the vote fraud issue versus versus this, just because you kind of left me the opening. The difference in um, uh, prosecuting vote fraud is that it, it is a criminal prosecutable offense, but it's it's not, you know, the type of, of fraud that that uh, uh, you'd seek to prosecute necessarily can't be just because you they they don't track it um if you don't track uh if you don't require ids then how do you know when people are voting without and anyway that's a different story <clears throat> but here you've got uh, actual verifiable uh civil damages and and people can go after them there. but they so, can't and I, this is this is what just in, no. i mean I, I am so upset about this right now i can't even tell you i normally kind of keep my cool but republicans have pushed a systematic effort to allow banks and financial institutions to put into their contracts with customers uh, clauses that say they cannot take these things to court and they have to be settled through arbitration they cannot do class action i mean it's it's been a travesty and this is the kind of thing that just oh just just 
this is the kind of under the radar thing that just makes me insane because they can't do that. It's that old Republican line about, well, you can sue. You're this one individual person and you're out maybe a hundred dollars and you can't sue. Yes. In cases like this, I think you, I would be, I would be confident uh, challenging an arbitration clause in a case like this. Yeah. And as an individual, when you can't be part of a class action, it's, it's, I'm just saying as an individual, if you're not allowed to be part of a class by because of various laws and, and, and Supreme Court interpretations and so forth, then then you're stuck because you're saying, well, am I going to bother getting an attorney and fighting and taking all this time for what was, you know, am I going to spend five, five, ten thousand dollars on a on a fifty dollar fee? No, I'm not going to no, do no, that. No, no, no. This uh, attorney's take would would take this would be foaming at the mouth but and you'll see this coming up in the next why? couple of weeks no, not gonna uh, happen. to take you're these, wrong. these cases on contingency you're, you're totally wrong it's not going to happen and that's because republicans have systematically tried to shut that kind of thing down because they're in the pockets of the financial institutions oh dear well you know it's great it's, it's kind of interesting jay because we totally agreed on the last story before this and here we're just totally at odds so it's kind of i guess it's kind of a nice balance there so anyway oh, um guess. but yeah i can't i can't wait, recall. Wait, wait and see and you will i i guarantee uh perhaps it'll be an, an under the radar story but uh we will see plenty and plenty of civil filings uh, against wells fargo uh within the next week okay we'll see what happens all right before we go uh listener mail uh it's time for that uh this week's comment comes from marcus in Wynn, arkansas Marcus writes, I really appreciated this weekend's podcast and especially, you'll like this, Jay, especially Jay's observations on Georgetown and black history versus American history, pointing out that we oh, need. thanks. Yeah, pointing out, he, so you pointed out that we need to focus on covering all these issues as part of American history rather than segmenting them. He says, however, I wanted to point out that many state and local governments adamantly oppose a more honest rewriting of our history textbooks, calling them anti-American and liberalizing. How would you both suggest a fix to this? Um, Before I let you have a crack at this, Jay, I have a kind of a short answer to this. I, I think that's unfortunate. I mean, there are plenty of stories of local school districts or even states uh, uh, mandating certain things or not allowing certain things when it comes to textbooks. And, and I have a big problem with that. But I don't have a solution because I, we have a tradition of local control when it comes to education. And while that's certainly imperfect, uh, I have big problems with sort of national standards and national kind of diktat about what should be taught and what shouldn't. So I think sometimes that's going to happen. And I think the best thing we can do is kind of shine a light on that when it happens and hope that the citizens in that locality, in that state will, through the democratic process, demand changes be made through their, you know, school boards and so forth. And sometimes that happens and sometimes that doesn't. And it's an imperfect system, but honestly, I can't think of anything better, unfortunately. What do you think, Jay? Um, yeah, this this is a, it's a tough question uh, when you're talking about um, uh, K through twelve history and how it's taught. Um, you know, in large part, yeah, there is the state and local control, but there's also a market force that that really pushes uh, with textbook sales, and that is. Um, what's adopted by either Texas or California? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's because those are the two biggest markets, and the textbook companies will 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 write the book according to to those uh, those standards uh, in order because that's that's how they have to sell them across the country. Right. Um, the other difficulty is, you know, to some extent when you're when you're writing a, a textbook, American history textbook, uh, no matter what, you have to make choices. Uh, and someone is always going to be upset with those choices. Some say they will be uh, too much leaning to the left, too much to the right. Um, my sense is often it, it's it's too much to the left uh, that you know the Howard Zinn sort of school of you know America's horrible and it sort of existed just to oppress minorities. And and I don't I don't buy into that. Um, but as I said last week, I think if we took a, a more honest, uh, hard hitting look at um, uh, slavery. Uh, in the U.S. as as one of the the really the biggest biggest issues uh, biggest factors of, of of this country and where we are and and you know it's also we're sort of in a point now where um, 150 years down the road we're able to put more perspective on it and and again that that may sound kind of 
kind of silly, but uh, I think these are things where you maybe need a hundred year perspective. Yeah. Um, it's, it's tough to, I think, write that in a way um, when you're talking, um, you know, say, say you're, you're writing the book for eighth grade history um, to really get into the magnitude of, of what happened and why it happened. And I think it comes off as a, um, unfortunately just sort of, Oh, well, okay. The slavery was bad. Um, right. And right. uh, and okay, and it was it was racist. Well, and again, it, it's it's more complicated than that. Um, so I think that's that's the other problem in, in history textbooks is, look, you're you've you've got some some difficult, complicated subjects, and you've got to boil them down um, to to sort of basics, and especially you know for for kids. Now, once you get to the collegiate level, I think it's something different. Um, and again, that's that's you know where my issue is. So much has been. Um, so much has been geared towards the the divisiveness of, of saying again, this is Black history versus traditional history. And you made a good point last week, Mike. That look, the the reaction of of bringing in this is Black history, women's history, queer history, whatever, uh, has been a reaction to the fact that these these groups were uh, minimalized or left out of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the traditional textbooks. Um, so, I, you know, I, I guess I don't have a, a real solution other than um, work hard and, and, and be reasonable. And, uh, you know, I, because again, I, I really understand the, the uh, concerns of folks who say, oh, these textbooks are just plain anti-American. Um, and some of them are inappropriately anti-American and some of them are appropriately just saying here are the facts um, because our, our, our country's history is, is certainly not perfect and it's, it's certainly flawed in a lot of ways. Um, so I, 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 I don't know. I mean this is sort of maybe a question for the history professors and the people who write these textbooks. Um, but it's, it's a good – it's a good discussion to have and, and hopefully we're moving towards that. And, you know, Mike, I'm, I'm going to actually work on trying to get a, a guest for an interview sometime um, to talk on, on this subject who could probably deal with it much more eloquently than, than I can. So All right, well, that should but be thank good. thank you yeah. for the comments and thank you for the good question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we uh – we ran a little long, but we were, we had a lot to talk about this week, and then pretty clearly, I was we were kind of passionate about some of these you things. Yeah, I, I got I got a little wound up, and it's not like I had any extra coffee or anything this morning. Anyway, that does do it for this week's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions, we would love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com and our Facebook page where we post stuff throughout the week, facebook.com slash politicsguys. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. If you're interested in helping us keep the show going, for sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets and reviewing the show on iTunes or Stitcher really does help. And finally, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can, of course, do that through the PayPal link on our website. And while you're there, do be sure to check out our listener rewards. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.